1: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 124th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is the illusion of inclusion. I'm joined by Dr. Heidi K. Gardner, who, along with Ivan A. Matviak, is the co-author of Smarter Collaboration, a new approach to breaking down barriers and transforming work. The publisher is Harvard Business Review Press. Dr. Gardner is a distinguished fellow at Harvard Law School and was previously a professor at Harvard Business School and a consultant at McKinsey and Company. She's been named by Thinkers 50 as a new generation business guru. She is the author of over 80 books, chapters, case studies, articles, and welcome to the show, Heidi.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Give us an overview of the book, if you don't mind, just as a kind of a setup.
0: Absolutely. So the problems that we are facing in today's world, I mean, if you think about the geopolitical situation or supply chain or inflation, these problems are so complex and multifaceted that if we have only one person, no matter how smart or hardworking they are, sitting alone and trying to resolve these issues, inevitably, we're going to miss both risks and opportunities. And smarter collaboration is a way to get people to join together and solve these complex problems across disciplines, across geographies, across status and hierarchy boundaries, and across organizational silos. And we can demonstrate empirically that when people behave in this way, everyone is better off.
1: Okay. Um, Let me just, you you know, in the subtitle of the book, it says a new approach to breaking down. So let's seize on that word new. Um, What is, would You know, some of the things you think are most unique or different about what you're advocating for here versus what we've heard before, perhaps, on the collaboration front.
0: Absolutely. It was super important for us to signal that this is a new approach because the book that I published five years ago was called Smart Collaboration, and it became a Washington Post bestseller, and we were thrilled with the reception that it got. But since then, we have learned a lot about how to implement and execute a strategy that hinges on smarter collaboration. So one of the things that's new is we no longer look at just different kinds of experts coming together. It's obviously very important that we get, say, economists and supply chain experts and human rights advocates and political commentators to come together and think about how some of these complex issues that I mentioned in the intro are going to affect businesses and philanthropies and communities. But we need more than just different kinds of experts. We need people who represent different communities, people who grew up in different communities, uh, different socioeconomic groups, uh, perhaps different cultures, maybe people who are in different generations. We've now got five generations in the workplace. And how do we think about tapping into the unique viewpoints and perspectives of people who are different ages? And so one of the new things about this book is how inclusive we are in thinking about whose point of view is absolutely essential in order for us to have a holistic, tailored, really appropriate and innovative solution to these complex problems.
1: So there, there's several places I want to go with what you just said. So one thing is you mentioned experts, and I, I really noticed this in the book. You said there are, when you start looking at missed opportunities, something like 65% of them were due to the experts who who were brought into the fold, but they got ignored or talked over by colleagues, for instance. How, how do you ensure that that doesn't happen? Because that, you know, 65% of missed opportunities is a lot of missed opportunities.
0: Yeah, Dan, good catch. I think that is a major mistake that so many people make when they think they're collaborating but in our parlance they're not doing it in a really smart way. They make the assumption that because we have the people in the room, so to speak, that we have those people on the Zoom screen, we have them on the distribution list, we have them around the table, that it means we're being inclusive. No, 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 not so fast. Merely being represented in a group is nowhere near as powerful as being truly included in the group. And when we talk about the vast proportion of opportunities being missed, it means that you might have somebody who appears to be you know, the representative in the room of a different point of view, but that person needs first to feel safe and motivated to speak up and make a contribution. And then the people around them need to truly listen and embrace what's different about that idea. Not what's comfortable and supports my point of view, but what's really different about it. And lastly, all of those different unique perspectives need to be knitted together in a holistic way. And that requires a huge number of skills that many of us not only haven't been trained in, but don't practice on a day-to-day basis. And so When we want to capture those opportunities, we have to think about how to create the context where people contribute, where their ideas are valued and embraced, and where collectively we are able to do so much more together than any of us could do on our own.
1: Yeah, no, I, I totally totally agree. It sounds like what you're talking about is leaders who have emotional intelligence, quite honestly, not just because that's the title of this program, but I was a, a lawyer for consumer affairs in New Jersey earlier in my career, and the head lawyer was wonderful because he'd say, uh, this may be a really dumb question. It was never a dumb question, first of all, and it, it was a license for people to you know, try to unearth and really understand what was going on in an issue rather than just go with a certain month amount of uh, rigid, predisposed opinions on something. Do you have some tips that you've seen that really do help make for a a safe environment, one that motivates and really does bring people in so they're not just in the room, but in the conversation?
0: Absolutely. So one of my colleagues at Harvard Business School, Amy Edmondson, has devoted so much of her career to studying psychological safety. And her latest book, The Fearless Organization, I think does a brilliant job of laying out not only what this means, how does it feel inside an organization when there's psychological safety, but she also showcases a whole range of different kinds of companies and organizations where leaders have created that environment. So I can't recommend that book enough. But if we want to get practical here, there's a few things I would say. Number one, leadership absolutely matters. And creating that environment where a leader is willing to admit whether it's a weakness or a vulnerability like hey i don't really understand this let me ask the naive question or whether it's admitting mistakes and saying gosh i got that one really wrong let's replay it how did we get ourselves into a position where i didn't have the capacity to make a better decision or simply asking for feedback and you know that genuinely asking for feedback truly wanting to hear what people think that you can do better Is a great way for a leader to open up an environment where people can have honest, transparent conversations that are really constructive about how to make a difference. But before we move on, Dan, let me just be clear. When I was doing my dissertation research two decades ago, one of the pieces that was most astonishing to me when I really crunched the data, you know, I worked with more than 600 professionals in strategy consulting firm and a big four accounting firm and a law firm. And we videotaped and audiotaped dozens and dozens and dozens of their meetings and collected all sorts of data. And at the end, what we could zero in on by means of a whole different kind of, you know, various kinds of methodologies, we showed very clearly that it wasn't just the leader's responsibility for creating that level of psychological safety in the context where people thrive. But we could document how many times it was peers who shut somebody down, and that surprised me a lot. And when we look at a situation, I think the leader's role is non-negotiable. I think it's necessary but not sufficient. But merely having one person who's the you know the figurehead or the the, the person with the most authority creating that context isn't enough uh, that uh The individuals in the room in that discussion, they need to have each other's back. And if somebody does get, say, interrupted, we need to have a toolkit that we can fluidly use that says, hey, wait a minute, let's go back to person's name because I think they were in the middle of something important.
1: Yeah, no. Well, there's that wonderful book with the title "Girl, Interrupted," which happens far too often. And in fact, when you mentioned that statistic about the sixty-five percent of missed opportunities, you didn't say it was leaders who were talking over, ignoring them. You said colleagues, which is peers to your your point of a moment ago. Uh, I'm really fond of that uh, term that's been invented now: ROM. What's your return on mistakes? So you actually are vulnerable <laughs> and you admit that you don't know everything. And that's why you need others to try to close that conversation. Now, when you you mentioned the book, and I thought this was really important, that, yes, you might, for instance, have women in the group and you say, OK, well, we, we've got diversity here, but how much are they really being allowed to contribute? What's the nature of their role? Because there's a really important term that you bring up in the book, um, homophily, and uh, the tendency of human beings to kind of go back toward themselves and I wanted to talk about that a bit, and and what you, your perspective on what you call th- threat rigidity—the tendency to have a bias against creativity at times.
0: Yeah, let's pull those two apart because they're pretty pointy-headed, geeky terms, but they're really <laughs> <laughs> they're really powerful. So, homophily, as you said, it's the natural human tendency for us to want to affiliate with and even to instinctively trust people whom we perceive to be our in-group, and that is something that is not a conscious decision oftentimes. It's triggered by how somebody looks or how they sound, what's their accent, how are they dressed, even you know other um, small indicators of whether this is friend or foe. And once somebody is perceived to be in my in-group, I'm so much more likely to turn to them for advice, to trust that what they say is well-intentioned and actually even just to have them pop to mind when there's an opportunity. Hey, who would I give, you know, this latest assignment to? Oh, let me think about her. Yeah, I think she's great. We have chemistry. You know, that's a that's a term that I think is a real red flag when somebody talks about chemistry. Yes, it matters that people get along with one another. But in my mind, chemistry is pretty much a synonym for homophily. You know, we, we think alike, we act alike. And so, you know, one of the points we make in the book is this idea of threat rigidity. That's a psychological phenomenon that has been studied and and really well researched for decades. Essentially, what it means is that when we are under pressure, and I don't just mean time pressure, because that's something we can cope with pretty mechanically. But when we're under real threat, we perceive that there's a risk of us losing something important. For example, if we're up for promotion and we feel like we're being scrutinized at every turn, or if there's just a really high stakes problem that we're trying to solve and all eyes are on us, that kind of performance pressure can trigger threat rigidity, which is ironic. It means sort of just at the point when we should be most creative and most open to novel ideas and trying really hard to be innovative, we tend to fall back on solutions that we know work. And those tried and true solutions are practically, by definition, not innovative and oftentimes pretty ill-suited to this really high-stakes environment. So to pull those two threads together, homophily is a natural way of operating. And when we're under pressure, threat rigidity leads us to go to our comfort zone, which means Under pressure, we're even more likely to turn to the usual suspects. And that's, I think, when things get pretty dangerous because people who are very similar to us are unlikely to contribute the novelty that leads to innovation.
1: Well, that's interesting in part because it's just been in the headlines, quite honestly. This is not an academic discussion. I mean, I'm sure you noticed that uh, when she named the new standing committee in China, there's a lot of homophily going on there. I mean, all sorts of commentators observed that these are people who had careers that are deeply wedded to his own, had similar viewpoints and so forth. So, uh, you know, in his remarks, he talked very much about the country being under threat, and yet it seems that threat rigidity... um, at least potentially, according to some observers, might be a real problem uh, if the next generation of Chinese leaders. What about within companies? Have you seen certain companies that you think have recognized that there was a, a risk of threat rigidity and came up with some really good ways to, to uh, you know, avoid it?
0: Let me give a, a really data driven example, right? I'm a, a pointy headed sure. data nerd. And so <laughs> what I what I love is being able to use data and analytics to reveal things about oneself or one's group that Aren't quite as observable with the naked eye. So we've developed this psychometric tool called the Smart Collaboration Accelerator. And it's really simple to use. It's 10-minute online self-assessment and it breaks down people's natural behaviors along seven different dimensions. And if you look at any one of those dimensions, being extreme on the, you know, the, the the one end or the other is not necessarily good or bad for collaboration. It's how people use that as an individual. And so as an example, I could be a really, really complex thinker. I I love abstractions. I love to see connections where other people don't see them. I love thinking big, big, big picture. Well, that's phenomenal. Those people tend to be really creative. But unless I embrace somebody at the opposite end of the spectrum, who's a concrete thinker, somebody who doesn't love that ambiguity, they love the concreteness of putting a plan in place and marching through and step-by-step making sure things get done and all the bases are covered... If the complex thinker prides themselves on only thinking big thoughts and they feel superior to somebody who's, oh, you know, mundane and looks at those details, they're never going to be innovative. They're just going to end up with big, crazy thoughts because they really need that concrete thinker to help them put their plans in place. And so at the individual level, using some science-backed research to show somebody What their natural tendencies are and flag when those strengths can become problematic can be very powerful. And we have an example. We have an example of a big consumer electronics company where we ran this um, assessment on all 35 members of their global executive team. And one of the dimensions where there was really clear homogeneity was their. Uh, propensity to take risks, 33 of those 35 individuals at the Exco, the very highest levels, were um, strong, strong, strong risk seekers. In other words, their full motivation was not to miss any opportunity, even if it meant taking some chances. And when we put the data in front of them and said, you know, this group, 33 of 35, are really strongly biased in that direction, You had one guy who raised his hand. This was on a a Zoom link. People were coming in from all over the world. And he said... And you never effing listen to me. He said, You <laughs> <laughs> he said, I'm one of the, you know, I'm one of the two risk spotters. He said, I'm really motivated by not stepping on landmines and, and keeping this company out of trouble. He said, but you know, like, you know, and then there was some really some really colorful discussion around how much everyone else hated to listen to him because he, you know, threw cold water on the ideas and so forth. But it was a brilliant way, Dan, to get these people seeing you know visually we graphed it out for them look how biased you are and that was just on one dimension and it sparked you know not only a discussion of okay so what are we going to do to have healthier dialogue and decision making more robust decision making in this exco but r- more systemically what is going on in our people processes that you have to look like a cowboy to make it onto exco i mean everything there was geared so that the people who were groomed as the successors to to step into one of these global leadership roles they had to be a mini me and that's super unhealthy so that company i mean that's it's going to take some years to 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 rewind what it looks like for their promotion processes and so forth but that level of understanding self awareness at the at the group level is absolutely essential, and because these folks were engineers, until they saw the data in black and white, they weren't willing to make a move on it.
1: Huh. So engineers and yet risk takers. That's interesting. My father was an engineer, and absolutely, I mean, he'll he'll take measured risks, but uh, they were very measured. Um, just to help out listeners, um, those seven dimensions include things like: uh, are you trusting or wary, close or distant, kind of more individual individualistic or group oriented. Did you find? I mean, I, I was so curious, and I really love this part of the book, along with other many other parts. But the the seven dimension. Did you ever come up with what you thought was the I don't know. It's very reductive that the golden rule as to what was the best blend you could hope for. I mean, you're right. Oh. People can embody more than one thing, but did you ever start to see data that? took you to certain things where the most important dimensions to make sure they're balanced or anything you can say in terms of some, some rubrics.
0: So I would have loved to come up with the golden rule of, you know, this is the ultimate smart collaborator. (laughs) And trust me, when Mm -hmm. I say we crunched the data searching for it, I mean, we tortured that data trying to find it. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it just doesn't exist. Right? And so what matters is not what somebody's natural tendency is. You know, we are not looking for an initiator, group, risk seeker, complex thinker. No, because you could you could have somebody with that profile who's brilliant at collaboration because they're self-aware. They know when to regulate that tendency. They know when to lean in. They are not only open to, but actively seeking people who behave differently. That's going to be a brilliant collaborator. You could have somebody with that same profile who overuses their tendency, who engages in, you know, shutting down other people. And, you know, it's really about how do you use your natural tendencies, not what those tendencies are.
1: Plus, here in a context. I mean, there's other people in the group by definition and how they're all going to play off each one. 100%. Yeah. So w- one other question before we, we uh, conclude here. I was very interested in how you looked at uh, how we might evaluate, because if you bring this down to the practical, you know, how is collaboration measured and rewarded? And you had this breakdown of 40, 30, 15, and 15. Without giving it away myself, can you maybe uh, explain a bit what you meant in terms of evaluation? And I'll have a follow-on question there.
0: Oh boy. Um, This is a a really sort of tricky and nuanced area because what we're talking about is how do you create a scorecard, to use the shortcut, you know, how do you create a set of objectives that not only signal to people how they should be spending their effort and time and energy and resources, but keeping them aligned towards these big strategic goals. And that, that magic formula you just came up with, that's kind of our proposed waiting, at least as a starting point, for thinking about how do you get people Overweighted. Um, how do you get them to over-index on the kinds of activities at the collective level that drive the big strategic imperatives? And the example we use in the book is a technology company where they had some really siloed objectives. You know, you had salespeople out there getting bonuses for selling as much as humanly possible, and you had the install team racing to get the software implemented, but leaving the client kind of holding the bag and so forth. And with those siloed Um, more uh, functional objectives, they were really losing market share and customer satisfaction. And so what we are recommending is that, you know, in that company, they did it. They created a scorecard that got people across functions, everyone who touched that install process to be focused on long-term customer satisfaction. And people's behaviors had to change. Um, and of course, you know, the, not just the metrics changed, but the way people were rewarded and they went so far as to do the right thing and change their whole performance management system so that people weren't just racing after the quantitative, quantifiable short term objectives. But there was a section in there where they were also rewarded for doing the very hard long-term, sometimes ambiguous pieces of work that needed to be done for that company to reach its goals that it set that, you know, won't be completely achieved for perhaps a decade.
1: Yeah, no, and I really was interested in, in that blend, uh, in part because you, as you mentioned in the book, sometimes the things that take time to build are are given to uh, junior members or maybe women on the on the team, uh, and the rewards and the benefit to the company will be obvious later. But in the meantime, certain people are getting all the accolades for driving the short term sales, for instance.
0: Absolutely, and that's uh, and that's, yeah. and and that's part risk. of you know to, to tie it back to 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 where we began the illusion of inclusion is you know, when an organization purports to have a system that is equitable and highly inclusive, but then they have structures and systems set up so that the people from underrepresented groups are really getting the short stick um, because they are not rewarded for all of the energy that they put into you know, a whole array of different kinds of activities that they get, you know, staffed with or opportunities to to pursue. And to be a truly inclusive organization is not to be altruistic. To be a truly inclusive organization, not just, you know, an uh, illusory one, is to make sure that every individual there is truly playing to their strengths and that they have the opportunity to step up and take on stretch assignments and they get rewarded for doing that. And people understand the benefits of hearing from people who are different from them, even when it's uncomfortable. That's how we crash through the illusion of inclusion. And that's what we mean by smarter collaboration.
1: Well, and I, I admit, it, at least in my case, I, I said, "Okay, I, I like smarter. I also like warmer. I like ethical. Uh, there's all sorts of flavors of collaboration. I think you're 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 aiming for here, without a doubt. Um, yeah. So, anyway, I have so much enjoyed the book and uh, the chance to, to talk with you, Heidi. Uh, just to summarize things for everybody, this is uh, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. This has been episode 124. My guest. Dr. Heidi Gardner. She is the principal author, at least for the purposes of this interview, of Smarter Collaboration, A New Approach to Breaking Down Barriers and Transforming Work. Her co-author in the book, Ivan A. Matfiak. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from Flo Rita, who said, collaborations expand who you are. Until next time, take care and be well. Thank mm-hmm. you.